In our pressure cooker of a society, have you ever stopped to wonder, what's the life of a police officer like? Well, today we're going to speak with Michael Hurst, who is a former police officer of 16 years and who is the $2 million man, literally, from all the surgeries he had to do to get put back together after an event with a suspect. And, you know, he put his life back together, overcame PTSD, and now he inspires people with his podcast, which is called One More Thing Before You Go. Join us and have some heart-opening realization about those other people on the other side of the uniform. Well, hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Soul Nectar Show, that show where we talk about all things essence, where we gather around the campfire and we share our stories of connection to that which is bigger than us, to the great mystery beyond the veil, to those synchronistic moments that lead us inexorably towards a deeper understanding of ourselves and the planet and our community and even our societal structures. We're going to have some interesting conversations today. I'm your host, Carrie Hummingbird. And as you know, I like to have these conversations week after week. I like to really push the envelope of what we think is true, what we think we know, and challenge those assumptions. I love to challenge The assumptions we make, I practice the four agreements, don't make any assumptions. I find myself in assumptions almost every single day. And I like to challenge those assumptions. And sometimes our assumptions become a worldview or a perspective on life. So when we have this opportunity to hear someone's story, we have this opportunity to kind of like question our own thoughts about things, question the way we live our lives, question the things that we take for granted, question the things that we think are true, And all to what? Open up more potential, open up more possibilities. And this is what definitely our guest today has done. Michael Hurst is here with us. He's the host of One More Thing Before You Go podcast, which focuses on honest conversations about life, what makes us laugh, what makes us cry, what makes us contemplate, what makes us feel, what makes us hate, and what makes us love. And I've been on his podcast and you guys can go check that out over there. But you guys should know like something about Michael is that he's actually the $2 million man. And you know, he used to be a police. He's been in the police for 16 and a half years. He was a sergeant preparing to be a lieutenant. And then he had a fateful encounter that changed the direction of his life. And now he's doing all the things I just told you. He's inspiring people. He's out there and he's had quite the journey of opening up what is possible, what is possible for someone who has been through what he's been through. So Michael, welcome on the show. I'm so excited to share your story with everyone here. No, Carrie, thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You do a wonderful thing for everybody. So I appreciate you and what you present. So I'm honored to be here. Yeah, you know, Michael, I really appreciate your transparency and your honesty and Having lived on the sort of 
part of our society that's responsible for keeping everybody in line, right? Like keeping everything going and the people you call when you can't solve it yourself because people are being irrational or unreasonable or whatever is going on in people's lives, right? That they just cannot get themselves to a space of diplomacy. And then we got to call the police because who else is going to help us in that moment when our person is being unreasonable? And you get called into, uh, as a cop, you got called into lots and lots of situations that were probably dangerous for you physically as well. And I know that we talked a little bit on your show about the PTSD that that causes, just a lifetime of that, you know, 16 years of being on guard for like what crazy thing a person's going to do next (laughs) and being the one that's supposed to stop them from doing it. That's a whole lot of tension. Tell us a little bit about your life in police, just so everyone really understands. I'd love everybody to understand the perspective and me as well of, you know, what it's like to be a police officer. And then I want to hear about your faithful day and we'll go from there. How's that? Absolutely. We'd love to tell you. You know, it's interesting. Police officers, firefighters, EMTs, we're all on the front line of, uh, we see people at their worst and we see the best people at their worst. And it's a situation that uh, we walk into every aspect of life, whether it be poor, rich, doesn't make, you know, the, the, the hierarchy doesn't make a difference in regard to that. Because again, as I just said, you see everybody at their worst or their worst people at their worst or the best people at their worst, excuse me. I got into law enforcement for very specific reasons. I wanted to protect and serve. I felt that uh, I could contribute to society in a very positive way. And I felt that I could help people. And um, I know that sounds kind of cliche, but in reality, that's the reason I got involved in law enforcement. I wanted to literally help people. I got I worked a domestic violence task force for about four years, and the task force worked the worst of the worst domestic violence. Not saying that any domestic violence is any good, but we worked the worst cases of domestic violence, and it was a multi-agency task force. I worked a DUI task force where I was in charge of that, where we sought out and arrested individuals who were driving under the influence of alcohol and or drugs and took them off the street. I worked a fugitive task force as well. That fugitive task force, that was our job. We went around and arrested those individuals that were running from the law. They had warrants, they had arrest warrants, they had outstanding tickets, they had things like this. So we were presented with all kinds of situations that would culminate, as you said earlier, a little bit of tension, some stress. As a police officer, you kind of learn the methodologies to kind of suppress it. Uh, you you know, you go to a call, if you're knocking on somebody's door and you're telling them that they just lost somebody and they collapse or they they lose their sensibility at that moment, you know, you can't cry. You can't turn around and walk away. You have to, you have to suppress that. You have to manage that. Even though we're human beings, we have empathy, we have compassion. That's why we do the job. You have to kind of learn to push it down. Well, over time, that starts compounding upon each other. Every time you go to a call for a traffic accident and you watch somebody die or you hold their hand for the last time and they say, please tell me, you know, tell my wife I love them, tell my husband I love them, tell my kids I love them. It creates a vault inside your heart and inside your mind. And it develops, especially year after year, day after day, week after week, it creates a a file cabinet, so to speak. And that file cabinet gets shut and locked. And most 95, 98% of the police officers and firefighters and EMTs, we do that on a basic daily level. As a cop, you're never off the job. 
you're always on the job. Even when you're off duty, you're always on the job because you're you're not allowed to say, well, I'm, I'm here sitting here having lunch or dinner with my wife or my kids and I see somebody fighting over there. You know, you can't just not get involved. You took an oath to be able to protect and serve. So the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week aspect of being a police officer eventually catches up to you. And then when you come into a situation where you have an incident that changes your life in an instant, which is what happened to me, it changed my life in an instant. I was involved in a, I was a, again, a sergeant, as you said earlier. And um, I don't know if you want to start, you know, get into this, in this part of it or not, but two of my officers had a, a call in the, about 2.30 in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And uh, they had a suspect that was backed up on somebody's property and he refused to leave. And when he refused to leave, he refused to open the door. He refused to roll down his window. They called for supervisors. So when I showed up, I made the mistake of walking in front of my car. When I did, this individual was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, we later determined. He was angry about that and he floored it. So he pinned me between his his car and my patrol vehicle and then backed up and tried to run me over again. He was caught about a mile down the road. In that particular incident, it changed my life. Mm. And it developed into severe rheumatoid arthritis. I had injuries to my knees and injuries to my shoulders. I had injuries to my ankle, my hip, things like this that we had to deal with. And that's a whole other journey we'll, we'll go into shortly. But what it did was it allowed me to reflect upon my career in law enforcement. And as I said earlier, I loved my job. I loved protecting and serving. I've talked people out of suicide. I have saved people's lives that were having a heart attack, overdosing on drugs. I've investigated and arrested uh, people who have murdered somebody, assaulted somebody. You name it, I've done it. I have been there countless times, being the last person somebody saw when they did die. You know, I said earlier, the, the can you please tell somebody something? And when you go back to deliver that message, it continues to compound on you. You see those faces. You see the unintended deaths. You see somebody that hadn't had been reported two weeks after they died. Somebody said, hey, they never showed up. Can you go check on them? And you find somebody died two weeks ago. And those visions stay with you. Those feelings stay with you. The empathy, the compassion that you have for those cases. That's why you see some cops that are off the job, but they go back and work cold cases because it's still in your nature to solve those things to get answers for each one of those things. Well, all of that creates a post-traumatic stress disorder type atmosphere within your system because you see those faces, you see the desperation. The last person, I don't know how graphic you really want me to get, the last person that I had any any dealings with regard to that, I watched somebody die, is an individual that was basically suffocated into death and we could do nothing about it. So, Looking in the de- this guy's eyes, seeing the desperation in this person's eyes, us working on him and not being able to get him to breathe and watching him pass away, I see that over and over again, especially things that would trigger me. So post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anybody, not just a police officer, not a soldier, not just a soldier, not just a, a firefighter, an EMT, a doctor, a nurse. Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to any one of us if you've been a victim of rape of domestic violence, of a violent crime. These kind of things can create an atmosphere for anyone because it is a stressful situation that affects your mind and your body in such a way that it 
it affects it adversely. And you do things to cover it up. You do things to try to ignore it. You do things to try to suppress it and push it away. But all that does is continue to build within you until you find a way to release it. Yeah. And and I can see that is um, a cumulative effect, right? So like there's so much stress that people then might act out from that space, not really intending to, but then have no ability in that moment to kind of like check themselves, right? And we've all been in those, I have been in those situations where I feel like resonant a little bit in the fact that as a spiritual guide, like there's that same kind of pressure, like it's always on, it's 24 by seven, you know, like you don't like have any reprieve to just be a normal human. You know, it's like the standard is high and that I hold myself to and I'm human. So I have breakdowns, I have breakdowns to break through and Actually, we were just talking about it in some of our previous episodes. Our previous episode we had with um, with my guest, Kim O'Neill, and you'll have to go back and watch the episode. But I was talking about an officer who did lose his composure, I guess. He was having a bad day or something like that. And he rode my bumper for like literally half a mile. It was really intimidating. Like he was on my bumper and like projecting all this really big intimidation energy at me. And I was just like, what is going on with this guy? It's scary. Yeah. And he's trying to and wagging his finger at me and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I'm a 53 year old woman. Come on now. But I was thinking about you because at the same time, I was having interviews with you, right? So I thought, Spirit is lining this whole thing up for me to have this conversation, like to have the whole perspective, guys, like everyone who's listening, to show all sides, right? Because we're omniscient. We show all sides of the equation, not just one perspective or two perspectives, but like the whole equation. And so, yeah, my friend Kim and I were having conversations and, and to be honest with you, Michael, like when somebody does that, let's say somebody loses their stuff, who's supposed to be together, it kind of rattles you in a way that like Mm. all of a sudden it rattled me. I I'll just claim for myself. Like I was deeply rattled by that. And I thought I had it handled. Like I thought it was okay. I thought everything was fine. I thought we had, we had solved it. You know, I, I went and filed Mm. a report and just said, this guy is having some mental challenges right now. He might need some extra help. You know, I don't even know what his badge is, but he needs some help figure out who he is. Like he's going to about to crack. And so then I handled it really well. And then like two days later, Michael, on the same road, same cop or different cop. I don't know. I don't know. Pull me over. And I lost my crap. I lost it. I was like, you're just trying to get retribution. And I lost it. And then the guy's looking at me, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not me. I don't know. And he was really offended. He's like, you're being disrespectful. And and so I caught myself in that moment of reaction, right? Because I had previously, like stories started building that they're out to get me or like they're all teamed up. And women have experienced that. Women have experienced men being together, suppressing women. So it's a thing that's in the space that needs healing, right? So all things are true at the same time. And I caught myself in the middle of it. I didn't catch the whole reaction, but I caught myself and I was like, listen, it might be true what you're saying. I'm just telling you I'm having a reaction. I'm just going to sit here, do what you need to do. And I'm going to go home and, and handle myself. And I did. I came home and screamed. So this is where like somebody has to release the tension. Our society is kind of screwed up, isn't it? Like, Isn't that screwed up like that we're in this spot where like a whole group of people can't actually be authentic with how they're feeling 
And then this tension, like this tension that builds in our society to keep everything suppressed. And it's not just police officers, but most people are trying to play poker, like keep a poker face and keep all this stuff stuffed. And then what happens is, is like little road rages, right? Like little explosions. And, you know, it could happen to anybody, including people with a badge, right? So like, how do we, this isn't healthy. You experienced, tell us a little bit about I want to hear about your experience too and your recovery because it's miraculous, guys. What this guy's been through is incredible, like how you recovered. But tell a little bit about the PTSD part because that's that's traumatizing to be pinned to a car and have somebody try to run you over and kill you. How has that affected you at a deep level? How have you come back into a sense of safety inside of yourself? Because you're very grounded now. So how did you how did you do that? How did you come back into safety? I'll be happy to tell you that. I would like to say one thing. I, I'm sorry that this individual did that to you, but that is very unprofessional. But as you said just a few minutes ago, we're all human beings, and sometimes it compounds with us. And you don't know what kind of a call he had been on prior to that. You know, going into domestic violence situations, like you said earlier, or any kind of a fight, any kind of a situation where you have to come in and step in between two people and try to calm that situation down. You know, it it it's. You take that away with you when you walk away from that incident. So that's not defending this individual because obviously that is very unprofessional and that shouldn't have happened to you. So as a law enforcement officer, I will apologize that that took place to you. That shouldn't have taken place. Um, I'm glad that you were able to start working through it, though. It's interesting because when I when I wanted to be a police officer, my intention was to go up the line. And so when we talk about feelings and you talk about the, where I, I was where I went to and, and where I'm at now. Because I was a sergeant, you know, ready to take a lieutenant's test, then I would have moved up the line. I wanted to be a captain, I wanted to be assistant chief, then a chief. I had other individuals, colleagues of mine that fell up the department. Those people that worked underneath me, beside me, uh, and those that were just barely, same level would be sergeants, they moved up the line and I did not. So after my incident, after I was forced to retire because of the injuries that I had, faced with the possibility that I was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life and that I wouldn't be able to walk my daughters down the aisle and I wouldn't be able to be the husband that I needed to be, the father I needed to be. The fact that I could not move up the line, that compounded upon itself into depression and anger and resentment. And it sitting there, and if I get emotional, you'll have to forgive me in oh, advance. Oh no, it's all welcome. Having to have my... My daughters pushed me around in a wheelchair is very humbling. And that further pushed me into depression and anger and resentment because I felt, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why did I get this done? I was a good cop. I took bad people off the street. I arrested two of America's most wanted. And I felt that I was contributing positively to society. So the depression and the anger and everything related to that in post-traumatic stress disorder. At that time, I did not recognize it as that, so I'll be honest with you. What I recognized was the anger, the resentment, and the depression. I was depressed because I was where in the position that I was in. I was depressed because I couldn't be the father I could be. I was depressed because I couldn't be the brother I could be, the husband I could be, the friend that I could be. It got stalled, it got pushed down, and I was not able to move that forward. So. At that time, I did not recognize that as PTSD, but I recognized it was those three things. So it took me a while. It took my oldest daughter to me for me to recognize that I had the ability within myself to overcome 
the depression, the anger, the resentment, and the disability. And it took my oldest daughter, Caitlin, to look me square in the eye when she was going to get married, and I asked her what she wanted, and she said, I want you to walk me down the aisle. And she says, I know that you can do it. So it was at that time that I had to take a reality check within myself, and I started recognizing from that perspective that, yes, I was depressed. Yes, I was angry. Yes, I was resentful. But the resentment wasn't doing me any good. The anger wasn't doing me any good. The depression wasn't doing me any good. So I decided to take those tools and turn them around and use that against my situation from that perspective. Yeah, so you use the anger as a fuel to motivate you to take action, to have the strength to overcome your challenges. Yes. With the motivation of my daughter, my wife, and my other daughter. You know what's because, interesting, Michael, is that, have you heard of Power Versus Force with David Hawkins? I'm not, I'm sorry. I often refer to that book on his podcast because he's he's got a whole spectrum of emotions that are muscle-tested and across thousands of people that form like kind of a a bottom-to-top progression of emotion to where we we reach enlightenment. And it starts with shame at the bottom. But what you're talking about is that anger is two steps from the power, the true power, the love part of the matrix is anger. And then the next one is pride. And so you also talked about humility. And, And that when you turn the corner into the power matrix, it's courage. And I really feel like you embodied courage on your journey. What do you think about that? I would say without being, I guess, without being narcissistic, (laughs) yes, I had to find my courage within myself and then bring that courage up to say that, yes, I can do this. So when my daughter asked me to, more or less asked me, kind of told me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, get out of your self-pity cave they're in. You're really angry and you're killing yourself with it. And I need my dad to stand up. Exactly. Then I was able to find the courage. And when I found the courage, that gave me the opportunity to look around and find the doctors, the right physicians. I didn't do this alone. And I needed to make sure that I had the right people and the right tools in place. I know that I had the support of my family. I know that my my daughters pushed me in a wheelchair when I needed it. My wife pushed me in a wheelchair, carried me to the bathroom. And let me tell you something. When you go from being a sergeant that has a team of individuals that look up to you every each and every day that we go out, and you you are protecting and serving, and you are the person that people come to when they when they need help, or if there's a dangerous situation, you run into it where everybody else is running away from it, to have your wife have to take you to the bathroom and put you on the toilet, it changes a perspective on your life. Yeah, it's very humbling. It opens your heart. And I think that it brings you, though, deeper into your own humanity, right? Your own human existence. Which is a blessing. Talk a little bit about that, because that has changed your life, I'm sure. Well, it, it's, you know, you go back to the courage and what you said a little bit ago. You have to develop the courage and you have to make a choice in life. And you can choose to sit where you're at. You can choose to sit in the wheelchair. You can choose to take the diagnosis or you can choose to find a solution to come out of that and to move forward in a positive way. I had to make that choice. So I made that choice based on the love, the compassion, the humanity of the people that were around me, the people that were part of my life, my wife, my kids, my brother, my brother-in-law, my sister, my nieces, my nephews, my colleagues, okay, my, my old chief, my old sergeants, my old 
you know, my old, my guys, my team. I had to look into myself and recognize that I was not on this journey alone and know that I needed the courage to move it forward. I needed the humility to understand that I am a human being and that as a human being, I can be depressed for a point, but I have to recognize it and work through it. I could be angry, but I can use that anger to overcome. I can be the individual that I knew that I could be and that I was because of the strength of the individuals that were with me on the journey. I love that, Michael. It's those that as you're walking, they'll hold your hand. Mm. If you stall, they push you. They'll hold you up. If you can't climb the hill, they pull you. And those people that are around you that do that are like gold. Yeah, I really feel your heart. You know? That's beautiful. What you're talking about is such a radical shift from where you started in your career and in your life and your understanding of things. How would our world be different, Michael? How would our world be different if that's the understanding people had of each other, if that was how we treated each other? You know, it's interesting watching the world nowadays, sitting here and being able to observe it from this perspective. And, you know, although I was working in it for quite some time, I still am an observant individual. I'm still a trained observer. I have been. You know, I went to college to be a police officer. And I was involved in some aspects of law enforcement after I left my job. When you look at people in environments today and you see what is taking place and you see the anger and you see the where people have no compassion, they have no humanity. They're losing the compassion, the humanity, the humility in the understanding of individuals. And in doing so, what they've created is an environment where life doesn't matter, mm. in my opinion. And I think that we all need to take the opportunity to stop and take a breath and realize that we're all connected. As a human race, we're all connected. And that each one of us, although we all may be a different color, a different race, a different creed, a different religion, a different you know person, a man, a woman, a child, an elder, a priest or a rabbi or you know a, a, a therapist or a spiritual individual, we are all connected, and we're all human beings, and that we have the ability within ourselves to make a choice, like I said earlier. And that choice doesn't go with just whether or not I'm going to stay for the rest of my life in that wheelchair or I'm going to walk my daughter down the aisle and not look back. We have a choice in life to be able to understand that our neighbors are individuals and that whatever circumstance that they may be in, okay, we don't know what's happening behind that closed door. We don't know what's happening within their lives that have caused them to be, act, or do something that they're doing. So that we as an individual, as a human being, need to open our eyes and our heart and understand that those situations that our neighbors are in, our community, our society, that there's always more to the story. There's always, like my podcast, there's always one more thing. And we just need to be asking that, I think. We need to be able, be able to understand from that perspective because you don't know what somebody's going through. You don't understand unless you ask. Unless you open that door, unless you reach your hand out, open your heart. From that perspective, at least, at least that's where I feel, because I think society, unfortunately, has taken a dark turn, in my opinion. 
I think that, I don't, I'm not trying to be political, but in the environment that we are in today, what you're seeing is black and white, and I don't mean color. It's either this or it's that, without looking at the possibility of, well, maybe there's a middle ground that we all can understand, and we all can work towards the same goal. We can all work towards a society and a culture working together to move humanity forward in a positive way, like we did years and years ago during the Great Depression when everybody reached out and helped one another, not fought one another. Yeah, I love that. And and for my own journey, I would say a lot of light workers and people who are kind of new age, they they get really resentful, you know, about the authoritarian structures. And a lot of women are like really resentful yeah. about the patriarchal structures and understandably. You know, and because we I think that, you know, I said the other day to my husband, I said, you know what would make this better? And he said, what? I said, if everybody just at the same time just did a primal scream and just got it all out, you know, like <laughs> we'd just scream our heads off and just all scream at the same time, you know, because we co we collectively created something that is really, in some ways, parts of it are very beautiful, but there's this dark, unexpressed aspect that you're referring to and it's very hard to feel that. I think that's why a lot of our young people are really depressed is because they so. are so sensitive and they can feel this dark underbelly that everyone's trying to pretend is not there, but it's under the surface. And if you just scratch a little bit, you'll find it. Yep. And then they cut themselves and they feel it. You know, so I feel like we have to, as a light worker, I've had to acknowledge that big light has big shadow. Big light has deep, dark shadow. And I'll say um, the other, this week I've been feeling it, there's something and it's just so present for me. And I, ever since that thing, our interviews and everything, the last couple of weeks, I've been feeling it. I was even standing in line getting a juice and I all of a sudden, and I'm ordering my juice while simultaneously feeling deep hatred inside of my body for humanity. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's like deep hatred. And I don't take it personally. I know it's just something right. I'm experiencing and feeling. That's not how I actually feel, but I was feeling it. I was like, wow, there's deep hatred for humanity running through my body right now. I don't know if it's because I'm standing right here or what's going on, but I'm just like, like, okay, there's that. Let me take a breath. Let me order my sustaining juice. <laughs> Let me notice how wonderful this person is in mm -hmm. front of me at the same time as I'm allowing myself to feel that, you know, and it is a little bit crazy making, you know, when you're, when you can really tap into those dark places and you can feel mm -hmm. that and you can see it as a police officer, you know, you've, you're trained to look at that. And then also simultaneously see the beauty. And that's the trick of yep. things, right? Is to see yep. both and <laughs> it's all happening at the same time. Well, you know, and, and back to your your questions a few minutes ago, I think that society as a whole are now collectively feeling PTSD. At least in my opinion, yeah. from my observation, mm -hmm. I think society as a whole is experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Because over the last several years, it has just compounded upon itself. And it seems to be never ending. That dark cloud keeps creeping up and seems like it's surrounding us. And it's very difficult to stay positive. And I understand that. I, I do understand that. But if from my journey, when you asked me earlier about my journey and where I'd come from and, and what I had done, it, it is making that decision to walk my daughter down the aisle was a positive decision for me from many, many perspectives, because one, it allowed me to understand and look deep within myself that I had the courage, I had the power, I had the ability to make that happen. And it was a lot of work. It was a lot of 
rehabilitation. It was a lot and of pain, a lot of pain. pain. Let's just be blunt. Like you yes. went through $2 million <laughs> worth of surgery. I did. And it's, I've gone through, like I said, I don't know if I had mentioned this earlier, I've been through eight surgeries. And each one of them, I've had two knees replaced, I've had a hip replaced, two shoulders rebuilt, and foot surgery. And the shoulders that I had rebuilt were are one of a kind. Um, at the time, last year and the year before, I was the only one in the whole world that had them. They had to rebuild them a specific way. And I'm very, very grateful for that. That's where you, on my journey during this whole process, what I had learned about myself and what I can share with your listeners and your viewers is that we all have the courage within ourselves to understand where we are at now, where we have come from, and the light at the end of that tunnel and how to reach it. We have to be able to open our eyes, open our hearts, look around us, understand that we have people there, we have individuals there collectively that will help us, pull us, push us, hold our hand, pull us up when we're down, that kind of a thing that we all have that ability within ourselves. In my journey, I had to understand and recognize, first and foremost, the depression, the anger, the resentment, to understand how to overcome each one of those and how to use that and utilize that to help me build a pathway for me to move forward. So each time I had a surgery, right? Each time that I had to go through, for example, my first knee surgery, I had the first knee surgery, the way you gotta walk. And I'm going, but I haven't walked, so this is going to hurt. And the physical therapist said, look me, and he said, the only way to do this is to do it, to walk. And he said, you can do it, because look where you're at now. So he pulled me up, he put the belt on me, he had a walker in front of me, he grabbed a hold of that belt, and I took my first step in four years by myself. Obviously, he was holding the strap at the back, so when I say by myself, he wasn't actually holding me up. That was just there for, I guess, what do you call it? Um, just in case. Yeah, just in case. So I, I knew it was there. I, I knew he had a hold of it, but he was not holding me up. He was making me do it myself. I want to ask you a question, Michael. You've seen arguably the darkest aspects of humanity. Yes. And yet you have a podcast that says one more thing before you go to open people's hearts to appreciate their lives. Would you, given the chance, would you, if you were able, go back and also be a cop again? Like if you could do it and serve the public that way, would you do it? This is a trick question, right? <laughs> well, I'm just curious, you know? Uh, you know, it, it, it's really interesting. That, that's, that's a great question. I'll tell you the reason. I, I'll tell you. I loved being a cop. But now I live vicariously through things like The Rookie on the ABC <laughs> and SWAT on CBS. <laughs> Without taking the risk. <laughs> like, Without okay, the I've risk. already done my risk. Yeah. Although my wife will tell you that when we're watching and the things are going on, I'm on the edge of the couch. And I'm, she's going, you can't jump at the TV. <laughs> <laughs> but so, um, but there's another way to translate those skills, right? Like there's a different way. There is. It is. I, you know, okay. I was presented with an opportunity to reinvent my life. I will tell you, and, and I'm going to be really honest, for the first probably eight months after I retired, I'd be driving around, my wife and I would be driving around, I would see something and I'd call it in. And the guys would show up and they do their thing 
And then they'd say, thanks, Sarge, go relax. And then pretty soon they were going, hey, Sarge, you're making more arrests now than you were on the job. Just go home. <laughs> Put your feet up. Relax. We have this. So once I kind of started feeling that, understood it, and kind of went, well, you know, I got to stop doing that. I need to find a way to reinvent my life so that I can do the same thing I wanted to do to protect and serve in such a way that I'm not going to put myself back in danger. I'm not going to put myself back in the line of fire, but I can still inspire, motivate, and educate people. So I have to go back to my oldest daughter again, because when I was looking to do that, I was seeking a positive way of doing that. She said, have you ever heard of a podcast, Dan? I said, no. <laughs> so she said, you need to do it right from home. Exactly. She said, listen to these. And when I listened to those, you know, I thought, you know, when I, when I had the opportunity, I did go back to university and I went back and got a master's degree in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on digital media, okay, digital media performance and art. And I created a documentary film that literally allowed me to work through my post-traumatic stress disorder by creating it, this documentary that gave people the opportunity to get to say or do that one more thing that they didn't get to do before losing somebody, whether it be instantaneously or through the long goodbye. And that's where one more thing before you go was actually born. So I did this documentary. I used creative arts for healing. And we were able to pick several people out who had stories to tell, like they did not get to do the last dance, for example, before they lost somebody in an instant. So we presented that opportunity. And we got them to dance. Through dance, they were able to overcome that grief and move forward because they got their last dance. Then we did the same thing with art and drama and music. And we allowed these opportunities to be able to present themselves. So as that progressed and we got done with that documentary, I reflected back on that. And my daughter says, you know, you can take that and put it into a podcast. And I thought the best way to reinvent my life and move forward in a positive way so that I can inspire, motivate, and educate people and help individuals get that one more thing was to create my podcast. So now I love my job. I love being a cop. I love protecting and serving. I love the opportunity that I had at that time. But what it did was teach me when I look back now, when I had all those surgeries where I was laying in the hospital, where I was going through rehab, where I was sitting on the couch, laying in bed till the physical therapist showed up, I had a lot of time to think. And during that time, it allowed me to work through a lot of my PTSD, the visions, the people that I watched die, the messages that I delivered, the assaults, the murders, the unattended deaths, the child abuse, the domestic violence, every one of those things I started working through. And then with this presentation that my daughter brought me, the opportunity, not presentation, but the opportunity was presented to me. I thought, you know, if I could reach people on a level that I couldn't as a police officer, that gave me hope. It gave me a feeling that I could still protect and serve in a different way by communicating across the globe. I've had conversations across the globe to help people get that one more thing to learn how to go over grief, to learn how to say goodbye if they didn't get to say goodbye, learn how to say what they wanted to say before they couldn't. The opportunity and the possibility that what, what, that 
other options exist for them. The possibility of something on the other side that they can look forward to or the possibility that they can change their lives and move forward in a positive way. So I love my job now. And yes, I would love to go back to be a cop, but in reality, I think I'm very, very happy and centered where I'm at now because I'm able to, I'm hurt. And when I say this, I'm not bragging. I'm hurt in 59 countries, Kerry. I would never have been able to do that as a police officer. My voice would not have been able to reach people in 59 different countries if I went back to being a cop. So your to answer you, that was a long version to answer your question. But I'll continue to, I'll live through Nathan Fillion and... <laughs> <laughs> Vicarious. Yeah, Vicarious. and I love it though, because really what you're speaking to is that what a greater service it is. And not to say anything about police, right. but it's just like, I really feel like if we just took your story and extrapolated this, how much more benefit could we do putting resource and effort into educating and helping and serving and growing before the chaos happens, like in someone's Mm -hmm. life, you know, before they lose their crap, teaching people how to process anger, teaching people how to love themselves so they don't get involved in addictions and they're not sitting in somebody's driveway, not able to let go. Like these are skills that if we actually spend some effort teaching this stuff in our society, we probably wouldn't have to have a police force risk their lives. Right. So I think I think you're focused in the right direction. I just wanted to ask that question. Well, yeah, yeah. 100%. I mean, and, and that's what I have the opportunity to do now. I have that opportunity to do that now. We do educate people. We do inspire people. We do motivate people. And it is done in such a manner that allows you, and I'm telling this to everybody that's watching this or listening to this, you have a choice. You have a choice. Mm-hmm. And you can you can sit there and I have to be careful how I say this. <laughs> do you? Well, because I you did. You just say it. Yeah, I say I did. You can sit there and wallow in sorrow. Yeah. You can sit there and, and understand, well, I'm depressed, but I don't want to do anything about it. I'm angry, but I don't want to do anything about it. I'm just going to stay angry and I'll be angry at everybody else. I'm resentful. So I'm going to keep being resentful because it satisfies me or does something for me. But then you you have a choice. Mm-hmm. Does it really does it really work for you? Does the resentment, the anger, the depression, does it really help you move forward in a positive way? Or does it create indigestion and heart rate issues and inflammatory issues and gut issues and headaches and migraines and neck aches and and you're aging quicker than you need to be aging. And it makes your life miserable every day. You go to bed at night, angry, resentful, and, and depressed, and you don't work through that. So oh, you wake up in the morning, you do it all over again, and you take years off of your life. And not just because we're all connected, I can feel it <laughs> because I'm in my yes. body. And I'm not blaming anybody, but I'm just, I did opt for this lifetime to be like this, but I can feel it. I can feel when, when that collective energy is out there and people aren't really facing their stuff and they're kind of avoiding it. And then it's stacking up and stacking up and stacking up and they're getting erratic. And the thing is, I know that pattern because guess what, Michael? I used to do that. <laughs> I used to yeah, be me. You know? I mean, I yeah. used to be me. So like, I get it. And I love your story, Michael. I really do. I love your story. I love your podcast. I love your mission. I really love your transparency around your experience as a police officer and your recovery from your accident. And and just like the fact that you owned it as your work is just so powerful. 
that you're not in blame and shame over this guy who was literally unable to operate himself, but you actually went, you know what? This is my soul journey. This is my stuff. I'm going to work on me. That's so admirable. And that's really, that's integrity, everyone. Like I really see you in your integrity, Michael. Like that's what that, that's what integrity means to me is you don't stop. Like my integrity is having this conversation with you, right? Because I have these kind of attitudes that came out last week. And I was like, oh, wow, I really, I really have some attitudes about authority. And I really have some attitudes about people wagging his little finger at me. And I have attitude about that. And I want to challenge it. And it's like, okay. And what's the other side of the coin? What's, the, what's another perspective? Because yeah. I think if we look at all the perspectives, we start to realize we're all just human. We're all human and we're doing yep. our best, right? And, yep. you know, we got to start seeing the human, not the suit. So, well, and, and that's in any situation, whether it be a police officer or you run into a police officer or a firefighter or an EMT, any situation that you're in, if you stop it for a moment and you take a breath and you just kind of look, you don't know what kind of day somebody's had. If you know you, you see some grumpy person and they're angry and you don't know what just happened, you don't know what happened to them. They could have just lost their husband, their wife, their kid, their uncle, their aunt, their grandparents, their you know, their parents or whatever the case may be, they could have just had a, a, a huge argument with somebody in regard to something that which is unnecessary. They could have just lost their job. I mean, there's so many aspects of life that could have interfered and created that environment. But a smile, believe it or not, goes a really, really long way. And not stepping over your stuff and not expecting. So like, I want to also say, like, I have huge amount of compassion in my heart that's opened up because of what you shared. And I was sitting over here thinking, wow, police forces really need a lot of mental health care. Like they really need like to be able to release, you know, maybe they need some smash rooms where they can just go beat some shit up because they're really (laughs) angry. They just need, they need some, they need some different techniques, not just pills because pills don't solve anything. They just cover up what you're feeling. They don't actually solve it. And I know that from my own experience, as you know. And it's like, maybe, yeah. maybe we need to be looking at mental health care, you know, for, for first responders, like, so that they can be at their best every time they enter a scene, they can be at their best and, yeah. and they can get the support they need. And that's really was my prayer for that guy. I was, I was standing up for myself when I filed my report, but I was also like, this guy needs some help like now before he really loses it. And that was really out of concern, you know? So I think we all need to look out for each other, like you said, you know, and, and honor all aspects of society, you know, just as much as uh, a lot of the light workers in my community, we want to tear the whole system down. We want to like disrupt the whole thing. We want to just, ki- you know, kill the matrix. But there's also like, yes, and, you know, there's a benefit to having first responders like Michael, and there's a benefit to this aspect of society. Some people need it in order to stay sort of semi contained and, you know, going through their soul journey. And so there, it is necessary. And so as we dismantle everything, let's also like keep a heart open for, for the service that people are offering. I just have my heart's open to you, Michael, and to all police officers and first responders. I want to say, I see you. I get it. I've been angry at you before. <laughs> I understand. And thank you for all you do. They put up with a lot of crap and thank you. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And you do a wonderful thing for individuals, especially with your compassion, your empathy, and your understanding and sharing that with others and helping people through their traumas and what they need to overcome. So I appreciate you as well. If I can say this, I mean, I think we're, I'm not sure if we're running over. Each day that you, if I can share this with your listeners. Yeah. My word of advice, my one more thing before we go from here. (laughs) 
I would like everybody to understand that we are all human beings. We're all connected. This universe belongs to us. We just have to ask if you need help. Reach a hand out. Okay? It was hard for me to ask for help in the beginning. But once I asked for help, I realized that there were a lot more hands out than I ever would have imagined because of I was embarrassed to ask in the first place. Don't be afraid to ask. If you have depression, if you are angry, if you have anger issues, if you have a mental issue that you feel that you cannot overcome, you need to reach out and ask for help. There are places that you can ask for help, that you can be anonymous, and they'll direct you, they'll listen, they'll put their ear to you so that you can talk to somebody, you can reach out, you can have somebody be there for you. Don't try to do this by yourself. Thank you for saying that, Michael, because I say that a lot here. And just want to remind everybody, I'm a healer. I do healings in case you want one. Okay. I never force it on anybody. It's only an option if you feel like it and you feel like you want it. Okay. Michael, I'm going to put over people over to your to your podcast before you go podcast.com. That'll be in the show notes, everybody, as well as a link to all of Michael's uh, social Twitter and, and Instagram and the Facebooks and the LinkedIn's and all the stuff. And please like and subscribe. If you really liked this episode, please share it out. Please uh, put a comment and tell us what you thought about it because we do check the comments and we would like you to engage with us and tell us what you thought. Share it with somebody you think might like really benefit from this interview because it was really hard, hard opening, right? Everybody like, come on, Michael's awesome. Share it out. And uh, we're going to give kisses. You want to help me give kisses on the way out? I can try. <laughs> okay. Do your best. Air kisses. Here they come, everybody. <laughs> kisses. Okay. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and staying all the way to the end. We'll see you next time on Soul Nectar Show. Bye for now. Bye-bye. If you found even one gold nugget in this episode of Soul Nectar Show, will you do us a favor? Will you subscribe, like, and share this episode? Maybe even write a comment and let us know what you thought about it. We really, really want to engage with you at a much deeper level. Let's be part of community together. Have a great week, everyone. Bye for now. To dive in deeper to nourishing conversation, visit soulnectar.show. Take a sip from the drip of nectar from the source of who you are.